Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. This session with the great conversationalist Richard Feidler was recorded at the 2018 festival. He chats to Gretel Colleen about his passion for the stories and personalities that have helped shape history. Good evening, Newcastle. My name is Gretel Colleen and this is just some bloke I picked up. <laughs> Would you please welcome Richard Feidler. Hello. Hello. Well, we have not got nearly long enough. I'm assuming, well, first of all, I've got the unenviable task of interviewing the person whom I think is the best interviewer in the country. Oh, Would you agree? <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just all have to forget that. All right? <laughs> now, Richard, I've known since... I think I first performed with you when I was 20. Yeah, the 1980s, I think. So that means we've probably known each other for around about 30 years, Gretel. Yeah. Um, yep. So I thought there are people in the audience who possibly know you from your various walks mm -hmm. of life as well, as a, with the Doug Anthony's conversations and now with these wonderful books. And yet many of us don't know anything about you. You're starting to dribble little bits and bobs in your books. Could you tell us? You're a storyteller, you're a curious person. What planet are you from? Can you just give us a bit of a background? <laughs> I'm from a, a planet called the suburbs of Australia, which is a, a strange place filled with bizarre creatures that uh, attack you from all sides with strange rituals involving barbecues, outdoor pools, uh, long walks <laughs> to school, uh, bindies on the lawn, that kind of thing. It's a terrifying landscape of unknown perils, Gretel. Um, same thing you grew up in, I think, too. Yes, I did, but I ran away from it mm -hmm. as soon as I could across the bindies and the hot sand. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me because listening to you interview people, you're a very curious person. That's, that's not common in our society to have a, people with curiosity who are actually listening and people who are also interested in storytelling. Did you emerge as the black sheep from your family or is the family one of storytelling? No, not at all. It is a very a family that's big on storytelling. I, on my dad's side in particular, they come from a kind of family of... Um, uh, large Irish Catholic family uh, with that kind of old-fashioned approach to sitting around a table, drinking a lot and telling funny stories and taking turns to tell stories as well. So you would not only become a good storyteller but a good listener at the same time. There was that, that whole culture, as it was before television destroyed it all in the 1960s, where, uh, you know, after work people would, uh, at the end of the day, get together in each other's houses and play cards or... Uh, drink beer in the pub and swap stories with one another uh, that related to from whatever background. My, my dad in particular was a really wonderful raconteur and I, I think you, when you grow up around someone like that you hear uh, the intonations of that, the musicality of the voice that's required to tell these, these kinds of stories and the kind of earthy Australian humour that goes with it that I'm still a total sucker for. Uh, you know, old-fashioned Australian humour still kills me even today uh, and if I hear it on my radio show, I just have to really fight for self-control. What do you mean? Like, what's an example? Oh, oh you know, uh, funny old stories from that. Are, that oh, I can't pull, pull, pull anything out of my head at the top of my head at the moment. But uh, like my dad would tell stories like being in the air force in New Guinea and getting this this strange mangy stray dog that they had flying with them <laughs> and flying fortresses or whatever the planes he had, Lancasters or whatever, and getting him drunk 
on beer in his dish every night and seeing this dog a bit wobbly going on, a, <laughs> on, a, on an Air Force plane and then after, if he was hungover, he'd go you, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but it's know. interesting, Richard, because you speak of this as though this was the way Australia was in those days. Mm. But for many of us, it wasn't like that, was it? We didn't grow up with families telling stories. You had family fights. People storming out of the room, sullen silence. No, I think that's more of a, a um, perhaps a country thing. My dad was brought up in, in really dire poverty in Gippsland. And I think that's, a, that's more where it comes from. There's a kind of a, it's more regional. It, it, not the, the thing that would emerge in, in I suppose, places like, like Newey as well as being uh, uh, other regional centres around Australia, I think, particularly, particularly places like this, I suppose, with, which has this great kind of working class legacy to it as well. I'm sure everyone here tonight knows at least two or three really funny bastards in Newcastle. Yes, right? Is that true? Yeah. Yes, right. Do uh, any of you think you're that really funny <laughs> bastard? <laughs> it, it's interesting to me also because it sounds like you grew up in a very affectionate world. And we're nearly mm. the same age. I think you're a couple of months older than me. Younger. Really? Mm. Sorry, I was looking backwards. Okay, so yeah, you're a couple of months younger yeah. than me. Glad you've done your research. Yeah. Thanks. Um, but it sounds like you, many of us had dads who were absent because that was what was required of them with work commitments. Your dad was very present. So you grew up in a very loved and loving household, would you say? Yes, he, he was present, but there were times when he wasn't, um, which was uh, he, his, his life and work had a lot of ups and downs. And so he had major periods of, um, which what I now recognise as depression, where he'd sort of sit you know, watching television for days on end. And dad being a charismatic person, he could carry that kind of big cloud around with him that would sort of rain on the whole house. Yeah. And, and that, would be, that would be interspersed with big, uh, moments of great exuberance. Whenever we go on family holidays, you know, the, the, you know the big Australian family holiday of the 1970s where you'd all get up at dawn? Yeah. Kids would have, kids would have the shits straight away with that. Yeah. Uh, mum and dad would have a horrible argument and, and, and Dad would be like, just get in the car, Pamela. Just get in the bloody car. And, and I'm like, get stuffed, Alan. Get stuffed. <laughs> and so then we'd get in the car and drive from somewhere like Adelaide to bloody Canberra. Uh, Not you know, even your destination was joyful. No, no, it was horrible. All of it was horrible. And there'd be this kind of angry, tense silence with Dad gunning down through the bloody hay plains or wherever it was. And then, and then finally we'd arrive at our friend's house and then Dad would relax and have a glass of wine and go, why is everyone frowning what's the matter <laughs> spark up your bastards that kind of thing so, so have mm. you, how many siblings do you have one just one sister yeah and is she one who loves stories oh and my god yes yes my god it's it's the most annoying thing in the world for her to have a brother like me uh, I think uh, because she's 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 very funny, Jane. She's naturally funny around a table and likes to do those things. She's more like Dad than I am, I think. Actually, she can hold a court at a table and uh, tell funny stories. And Mum, she's a strong kind of. Sounds like she'd had to do take the rudder a little bit. Mum, I think, is a creature of that era. Insofar as really, Mum was smart enough to have been a doctor, but women weren't supposed to be doctors mm. in that age. So she was a nurse instead. One of those nurses that knew more than. The, the doctors very often, I think. Uh, but mum, I think, was sort of trained to be a kind of a courtesan, if you like. So uh, both my parents were very good looking. And my, my father was like Errol Flynn. He was very, very handsome. And mum was extremely beautiful. And so they, they, looked like, they looked like movie stars together, both of them. 
And I think mum's, mum saw her, saw, she liked the fact that dad was this handsome, charismatic man and liked the fact that she, she could certainly go, oh, Alan, tell that one about, tell that story about this, tell that story about that. And she'd laugh even though she'd heard it, oh, 50,000 times or something, <laughs> you know. So, so that's what they were like together. Um, yes, but when they, they weren't, you know. But they, not, no, there wasn't any of that, but it was like loggerheads, you know. Um, what you is know. that gesticulation? No, that, wasn't, that was like uh, <laughs> metaphorical. There wasn't, there wasn't violence in my no, house. No, no. But there was, uh, you know, a lot of arguing and a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, horrible family arguments, so, yeah. So you grew up in a Catholic, fairly traditional household? Well, not that Catholic, culturally Catholic. Yeah. Uh, Dad went to a Catholic school where all he learnt was violence and obedience, I think. Uh, <laughs> and that was pretty much it, really, uh, to the point where he and his fellow students just tried to get revenge on the brothers uh, by tormenting them. One a friend, a friend of, him and, of Dad's and him uh, one day organised a terrible prank. Uh, they, there was one particularly sadistic brother and uh, Dad's friend stood up in the middle of class and said, that's it, I'm sick of it, I'm, I can't take anymore, walked over to the window, pretended to leap from the third <laughs> floor, but just slid around to the side. And at that point, Dad was lying face down on the asphalt below. <laughs> And so the brother went around to the window, screamed, and veritably pissed his pants, I think. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if he was a, probably wasn't a reformed man after that, but a certain amount of revenge was extracted in that moment anyway. Well, it's interesting because after school, you went to uni? Yeah. And yeah. did? I did an arts degree, one of those things that where, you know, even today I say, don't do an arts degree, it's a waste of time, you know, that kind of thing. Um, one of the best things I ever did in my life was to do an arts degree. And uh, I was encouraged to do that. I was the first person in my family to go to university. It's the same way my wife was as well. And, uh, and I, I, I'm so grateful I, I did that. I think, I think having this kind of narrow vocational drive at an early age is often a mistake for people. I really do. I think there's a, it's a really lovely thing to be able to have the opportunity to go to a university and try a whole bunch of different things outside of the, the crap that you're forced to do at high school and then to enjoy the process of education. Remember that whole idea of enjoying it? Uh, and that's what I was able to do. And then you took the tremendous career step of joining the Doug Anthony's. Yeah. And uh, being completely anarchic around the world. Yes, it was a brilliant 12-step plan that we enacted uh, <laughs> ruthlessly and to schedule, Gretel. No, that was just started as a busking group uh, to pay for beer money while we're at uni with me, Tim and Paul. And it's a thing that kind of metastasized like a, a bloody comedy cancer into something else, I think. Well, it's very interesting too. Does everybody remember the Doug Anthony's? Yeah, fantastic. We played here all the time, actually. We used to play at the Civic Theatre and at, uh, oh, is it Panthers, I think, as well? I don't know if that's still there. Workers' Club, yeah, thank, thank you. <laughs> but an interesting thing, because it was anarchic then and very well loved, and now is it 20 or 30 years later, there's been a resurgence in the the following of it, does that say something to you about the hunger of younger people wanting to hear that kind of voice? Well, it's, it's a wonderful thing that it said. I didn't want to be part of the, the um, new version of the group because I'm lo loving what I do right now. But it is interesting with Tim now, of course, afflicted with multiple sclerosis, yet still as funny as ever. And now guitar being played by Paul Livingston. I think this whole thing's been a ploy so that Paul McDermott could be the tallest person in the group. <laughs> and it's worked. 
It's worked. <laughs> he now lords over everyone from a great height. It's fascism beyond control is what it is. <laughs> well, let's get into the first book, because you're a late starter on this book writing. Oh. I just want to ask you one simple question to begin with. You, how many people do you think you've interviewed? Have you counted them? I've, well, on, on conversations, I'd say it's probably at the three or 4,000 mark. Right. I think. And I'm just dead scared. I'm going to... I used to be able to remember everyone's name. That's long gone. Uh, I'm, I'm dead scared I'm going to run into someone and they'll go, yeah. Richard, hi, I told you my life story about my three dead children and the skyscraper I was in that went on fire and how I rescued everyone in the building. Remember me? And I'll say, yes. No. <laughs> Other than that dilemma, there's also the dilemma of having interviewed some of the greatest writers of our time and then saying, I'm now going to write a book. Yes. Presumably publishers were all on board. How on earth did you decide, first of all, to have the confidence to do the first book? And secondly, what was the subject to be? How did you determine that? Um, I, I've, <laughs> do you know, trying to retrace my steps on that for some reason is quite hard, Gretel. I... Uh, I don't, I don't fully understand, the, I don't know if many of us fully understand the process by which we come to actually write a book. I mean, it's a whole lot of little decisions, but there's something pushing you forward that you barely understand. Uh, the first book I wrote, Ghost Empire, is the story of how I went to Rome and Istanbul, also known as Constantinople, with my son, Joe, who was then 14. And that journey and the book was conceived as a coming-of-age ceremony. And uh, fatherhood's been a big, big, big deal for me. I, I, I've really enjoyed being a father. And to mark his, pros, his, his transition into, in, out of boyhood into adolescence seemed like a really meaningful thing to do. So there was, that was all bound up in those feelings of wanting to, to do that. And, you know, we don't really have those coming-of-age ceremonies in the kind of culture that I come out of. I mean, Aboriginal people do, Jewish people do. And Jewish friends have said to me when I was thinking about this, about the, uh, the, the ceremony of the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah, they say, it's not for the benefit of the kid, even though they get a bike or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's for the benefit of the parents. It, it's, it's a ceremony that allows them to uh, grieve, over, in a way, over the loss of that gorgeous little darling that they once could hold in their hands and look after and devote all their time to and accept the fact that one day their child will, in due course, be, be leaving the nest. And uh, there's a great deal of truth in that, I think. So while uh, afterwards people said, oh, what a nice dad you are, taking your son on this coming, it's purely selfish. Uh, it I, also, I was doing it for my own benefit. It also helps you realise, gee, I'll be rid of this expense soon. Yes. <laughs> I, I wish that was not entirely funny, Gretel, but... Um, <laughs> That thought does creep around the edges at times, yeah. I must admit. And yes. I have to tell you, Richard, it is a very thinly veiled ploy because I don't know that there are many 14-year-olds that want to be dragged around oh. anywhere with Dad following his historical perspectives and presumably making notes the whole time, presumably interviewing people. How is Joe? Is he all <laughs> He's right? He's all right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it reminded me what happened to the, the great British conservative philosopher Roger Scruton had a son quite late in life, and he, in a kind of a, an outpouring, he said, I'm going to introduce my son to the, the great classics of, you know, Homer, Thucydides, Aeschylus, all these great classical writers. And so the Guardian then began a, a kind of a proposal to raise money to buy the kid an Xbox after that. <laughs> 
And, uh, and I, I thought that might happen with Joe. But, but the truth is, Joe, my son, was as interested in this history as, as me. And I, I wasn't there to really interview people at all. It was, to, it was for us to go on this journey together. Um, I, we were on this kind of history binge. Well, I was kind of on it and bringing him along with me. Uh, I, I remember I did a tiny bit of Roman history in high school. And then I thought I'd always go back to it at one point. I read a lot of 20th century history and, and a bit of 19th, and I thought, I'll get back to the, the, the ancient Romans at some point. And then I did, about 10 years ago. I started listening to this brilliant podcast called Mike Duncan's History of Rome and reading a lot more about the ancient Romans. And of course, once you get to the end of the Western Roman Empire in uh, 476, 475, 476, when the last boy emperor abdicates, Romulus Augustulus, that's where most of us think the Roman Empire ends, but it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And that's just Western chauvinism that tells you that. The Roman Empire kept rolling along for another thousand years after that, but it wasn't based in Rome, it was based in Constantinople, a far bigger and more beautiful city than Rome, which is the city we now call Istanbul. So I was becoming more interested in that. This is the civilization today we call Byzantium, but uh, Byzantium's a word that was coined afterwards. It's the old Greek name for the city before the Romans even got there. Byzantium or Byzantine civilization is a term invented by historians after the empire collapsed in the 15th century. So they called themselves Romans, even though after a time they were, they were Christians and not pagans. They wore robes instead of togas, if you like, and tunics, and they spoke Greek instead of Latin. They still called themselves Romans. Even today, there are Greeks who live in Turkey who don't call themselves Greeks, they call themselves Romans. Uh, and, and this was the story that I wanted to find out. And had you been to, now called Istanbul, had you been there previously? No. All right, so your expectations are very high. How did you feel when you, has everybody here been, everybody, have you all been to Istanbul like Newcastle, hired a bus? Did, yeah. <laughs> had, you can imagine your expectations were extraordinary. Yeah. Were they met? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm one of those people who wanted to like it anyway, so I was in a pretty good mood when I got there. Uh, what, what I wasn't expecting was that Istanbul would be so... I mean, you've just been there recently, Gretel. I'm sure you were surprised by, well, how bloody big it is. Mm. And, and, and it's got that surging, massive, massive metropolis feel to it that New York and Shanghai and Tokyo have. It's just, a, it's, it's again, the biggest city in Europe. And bigger than London, bigger than Moscow. And it has this great surging energy on the streets that's just fabulous. I just loved it. I completely loved it. And the fact that the, the ghost empire, the traces of the old empire of, of Byzantium are still there and are still so beautiful and are there to be discovered just makes, adds this kind of beautiful poignancy to this great big roiling metropolis. So can I just ask, in terms of methodology of writing this mm -hmm. book, you'd prepared what you were going to see you went to Rome as well, didn't you? Yeah. Rome, and you also went to Constantinople, yes, Constantinople. Istanbul. Mm. You went there, you did not interview anyone. No. Your son was there as your mm -hmm. Sherpa, and then... Yes, uh, water carrier, all that. How is this territory covered? I, when I was reading your book, I thought, where did you get all this information from? Where did you get it from? Well. It's been documented by several accounts. In order to write the story of the later Roman Empire, or Byzantium, centred around this great city, you have to kind of shift your thinking a bit. When I was growing up and learning history, I was told that civilization was something that keeps going westward. 
It's born in Mesopotamia, and it goes west to ancient Egypt, it goes west from there to ancient Greece, west to ancient Rome, then to Renaissance Europe, keeps going west over to America, and then civilization ends up eventually in California where it dies. Now, <laughs> this is what we're all taught when we're growing up, isn't it? Uh, it and it's a nonsense. And between uh, ancient Rome and Renaissance Europe, Western Europe, there's a kind of a dark age. Uh, we call the Middle Ages now. Um, that's just crap. It's just not a dark age at all. It is if you're living in some kind of crappy little village in France or, or England, yes. But that just fails to see where the centre of gravity is, which is really across the Eurasian continent. So in this period we call the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, this is a time when you have these great flourishing civilizations, starting from China in the east, India, Mongolia, uh, Persia, Arabia that surges out of nowhere and becomes triumphant, and, and Byzantium. And Byzantium, rather than seeing it as this far eastern fringe of civilization, it's really the far western point of it. In fact, of this great interchange of cultures talking to one another across the Silk Roads, exchanging ideas and goods and money. It's just western chauvinism that makes us see uh, the whole history of like western civilization is a thing that's always in becoming. This is something I think was a bit of a hangover of the British too. The British loved the ancient Romans. They admired their martial uh, uh, sternness. They admired their ability to run an empire. And uh, Byzantium looked too effete to them and too driven by superstition and uh, too cultured, too rich, because they were way richer than the, Middle Age, the Romans of the ancient era. And so we overlooked this whole period. And um, there are a lot of people who've never really heard of Byzantium but know what the word Byzantine means which is to mean something arcane and overly complex and bureaucratic. It doesn't really do justice. If, if it was so effete and so weak and pathetic as a civilization, how did it last for 1,100 years? How did it build the greatest church in the world, the Hagia Sophia, which I, for my money, is the most beautiful building in the world? How did it contain and create the biggest metropolis in the world at several points, which was Constantinople. So this is, this is this kind of secret history, if you like, from a Western point of view that I wanted to discover. And then you come to the story of the fall of the city to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, which when I first read that, I just couldn't believe how thrilling it was. You know, the Western Roman Empire based in, in Italy died a humiliating death with a whimper, not a bang in the fifth century when this boy emperor is sent on his way by a German chieftain. But the Roman Empire in the East, dying a thousand years later, has this complete Viking funeral. There's a siege which is unbelievably colourful, full of all this weirdness as well, and it ends in the most poignant way with the death of the last Roman emperor, which wasn't a boy in Italy, but this middle-aged man, uh, Constantine XI, who, who sort of emerged for me as a kind of a hero in the story. Is it in reading this, in writing this, did you think, oh my goodness, what a vacuum of heroes we have now? Or do you think our times will be written as poetically and perhaps romanticised in this way? I think we're fortunate not to need heroes. I mean, you know, once you read a bit of history, you kind of realise that this, I mean, people are having a terrible time in different places, yeah, in Australia, but by and large, this is as good as anyone's ever had it in the history of the world right now. I swear to God, when you read about the Black Plague coming through Constantinople, the scenes of horror and destruction that come with that, the rape of a city, 
the absolute constant terror of that. The, 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 I mean, when, when you read a bit more about what history is like, what really happens, people working in mines for the entirety of their lives in the ancient world, hardly ever seeing daylight and dying at the age of 25. Um, you realize that here and now, it, things are pretty good. It's about as good as anyone's had it, like I say, in the history of the world, by and large. Uh, so uh, maybe we're fortunate not to need heroes quite as much as the poor people of Constantinople did in 1453, under siege, friendless, and needing to take this incredible, terrifying last stand. You don't feel that we've just found an alternate version of hero? A Kardashian, for example? Ah. Or... Yes, I'm sure if we come under threat from some foreign invading power, there she'll be in her underwear, <laughs> ready to defend us. Uh, Actually, yeah. that is sounding like one of the stories from Constantinople. But one of the things that you referred to in your book, <laughs> the Churchill quote, the longer you can look back, the further you can look mm. forward. Do you think that our society should have a greater emphasis in the studies and acknowledgement of, of our past in terms of looking forward? I think the, um, I think the burden lies, burden if that's it, the challenge there lies for people who do write about history to engage people. I mean, I can, you can always say, well, there's always someone to say, oh, kids need to get more maths, or kids need to get more history, kids need to get more foreign languages, and, and teachers sit there and they go, bloody hell, you know, well, keep them in there for, what, 15 hours a day? How do, how do we sort of answer that, that mm. call all the time? I think, though, if you put really good stuff in front of people, they'll want it. Stories, you put them right in front of people, they will kind of grab them with both hands, and they'll find their own time and enthusiasm with, in which to gauge it. One of the other things that's often been said about history is that history belongs to the people who write it, mm -hmm. and by and large, that's been men. And in reading this history, uh, there's an abundance of men and not a great abundance of women that are spoken of. Is that what you put it down to? Because I want to ask you more about some of the women that were very impressive, but what's your perspective on the... Why were there so many men? Why? Why were they the ones telling the story? Uh, well, of course, I don't like words like patriarchy, but that Roman society was very, very, well, let's say blokey, shall we? Uh, <laughs> in, in the way it's been, been run. Uh, and the way Roman historians write about women is pathetic, by and large. Women are either total whores or scheming evil witches or they're the mothers of the nation. You can't be anything other than that if you're a woman appearing in Roman history. As, as, having written two, the, both these books, which are sort of at either ends of Europe in the Middle Ages, I've realised kind of one thing about women, though. There's something about, I think, women between their puberty and menopause are by and large terrifying to men in these societies. <laughs> and so they do what they can to cloister women and silence them and put them away in the building where they, so they can think clearly about conquering the Pechenegs or the Avars or whatever next door. But once women get past uh, menopause, then it's very possible, for very likely in fact, for women to suddenly become like one of the guys. A menopausal woman in, in, in uh, medieval Iceland, as in medieval Constantinople, can become a very powerful figure, wielding, wielding not, uh, not very often legal power, but de facto power. And they're, they're seen as, and they're respected, they're written of respectfully. But while women are still sexual, men just are going, oh, she's a whore, oh, she's a witch, oh my God, lock her up. Uh, then once she becomes like Helena, Constantine's mother, gets past menopausal, we worship you as the mother of the nation. So 
so you have to, in reading the original sources in Roman history, you have to just stop and keep still for a bit and just hear the women's voices outside of the loudmouth voice of this male historian who's writing this story. And I think in the process of writing history, if you stand very still and you listen properly, uh, stories and characters come right up to you. They absolutely do. So to write Ghost Empire, it's sort of like you, you announce you're having a town hall meeting like this one. Um, I'm going to be auditioning stories for my new book. Uh, come along if you can. And the first people to come barging through the door were these extraordinary women, quite frankly, Gretel, who sort of sat up the front row, opened up a bottle of scotch and said, have I got a bloody story for you? So. That's what I found in writing these stories. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the women become <clears throat> so wise in other cultures, because here you just kind of become invisible, don't you? Uh, but be inspired. Irene of Athens, now she, she is a very strong female character. What would you say her contribution was to the story? She becomes empress in this, uh, at the end of the worst period in the empire's history. Uh, she comes to power at a time when uh, Arab culture has, the Arab Muslims have just exploded almost seemingly out of nowhere and become this incredible power in the seventh century. In no time at all they emerge, there's people who were despised, living in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, regarded as kind of like vultures by the two great empires of Rome and, and Persia, are suddenly organized, militarily brilliant, and in no time at all they run over the Sassanid Persian Empire. This empire that's been in place for hundreds of years, gone, like that, just like that. Uh, and then they take over North Africa from the Romans and chunks of Asia Minor and, and, the, and Syria and Palestine and all these places and Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, which is of course terribly, terribly meaningful to Christians, is now become uh, a city controlled by the Arab Muslims. And, and none of them could figure out how to deal with this. It was, a sh it, it was like lightning out of a clear blue sky. Very quickly, the Arabs became sophisticated and rich. They studied the habits of governance for the Romans and the Persians and became very sophisticated and built a city, Baghdad, which at its height was bigger and more beautiful than Constantinople, which really did their heads in as well. So Irene comes to a power at a time when this has now become a more stable situation. The Arabs have had to recede a little bit. They've become more uh, settled in their job. Byzantium has been taking these backward steps, backward steps, and she turns the whole thing around. She comes to power in this kind of extraordinary process. She's, she's, she comes out of the provinces somewhere and gets married off to the sitting emperor, the young guy, who's, uh, she appears in what they call a bride show, where um, a whole lot of, it's, it's a bit like a beauty pageant. Young, eligible young women parade in front of the emperor and his mother, and they go, oh, we'll have her. So she comes out, Irene of Athens comes from Athens, and she's selected as the bride of the emperor. They fall out a bit because there's a big argument going on on whether it's okay to worship icons. Uh, then one day, there's a message from the palace that says the emperor is dead. It's highly regrettable. He died because he was trying on a crown and it gave him a nasty infection and he's dead. And <laughs> Empress Irene will be running things for a while now uh, <laughs> until her son comes of age. He was how old? He was a little boy at that point. And now, if you're a citizen or a member of the court, you go, well, all right. Uh, um, you're not going to ask too many questions. So she becomes uh, empress and a very, very powerful one. She forms an association with a powerful eunuch in the court and who's a brilliant prime minister. She outfoxes the generals. She outfoxes the iconoclasts. She brings stability to the empire and starts winning back some of the borders. 
But the whole time, her son's becoming older, and, she, and he's going, Mum, uh, I'm in my late teens now. Isn't it time you helped me, taught me how to run this empire? Later, darling, run along, play with your friends. And this happens once too often, and a group of men rally around him, and they depose her and her prime minister. But having taken over, he has no idea how to run an empire. So, of course, he needs to make his mum an advisor again. And then there's a coup d'etat, and Irene leads the coup d'etat against her own son. Her son is brought into the throne room, and she has both his eyes gouged out. Yeah, you see, aren't you? Look at you now. You were all real, yeah, you go girl a moment ago, weren't you? <laughs> Look at that. How about that, huh? And he died of his wounds shortly afterwards. She came about this close to marrying Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor of the West. And then at that point, the court went, you are not going to marry a German bogan like that. <laughs> Seriously, that's how they thought. And she was deposed and sent into exile. But she, her, she, she was unbelievably ruthless. But nonetheless, no more or less ruthless than other emperors of the time who did equally cruel things. And she, it's under her that the empire starts to turn around and starts to have a revival. It starts to win back territory and become the greatest power in Europe once again. So Irene, to me, is a fascinating figure because she's a brilliant politician. She actually takes the title of not just of empress, but emperor at some point, which is really audacious, really audacious. Mm. Uh, it just shows that even under that kind of a system, which is so hostile towards uh, a powerful woman exerting herself. Sometimes there are some women who are such clever politicians, so brilliant at what they do, they're really quite irrepressible and they succeed nonetheless. Although another one who didn't seem to have as much uh, sadism and cruelty was Theodora. And we were having a little chat in the green room prior about, because in our society we talk about the first wave, second wave, third wave of feminism as though it all started with the suffragettes. But Theodora was a feminist and fighting for women's rights how long ago was she? She was. Theodora is one of the most fascinating people, I think, in this whole story. Theodora was born the daughter of the bear keeper in the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome was the great stadium of Constantinople. It's a stadium that held as many people as the MCG. That's how big it was, where chariot races were held and horse races were held. She was born there as the daughter of the bear keeper, who, where bears would come out and entertain the, the patrons there. She was brilliant, famously beautiful, by 14, she was kind of like the equivalent of a burlesque star, uh, a sex worker and a courtesan, essentially. Uh, she met Justinian, who was the nephew of the emperor, who came from a common background as well, and they fell madly in love. And this is a love affair, that, and, and its passion never died between the two of them. Justinian is one of the greatest emperors that the empire had, and as heroes, so, so she did as well. Now, there were aristocrats in the court who were appalled by this, who saw them both as unspeakably common. The most fun historian to read from this time is an historian called Procopius, who was a snob, uh, and who wrote very diligent histories of the emperor did this, the emperor did that, he has the court historian. But he went home at night and wrote this extraordinary document called The Secret History, where he really got all the shit off his liver. He really did. <laughs> he, just, he just wrote it all down, that goddamn filthy, <laughs> vulgar, satanic emperor. People have seen Justinian walking around the palace at night with his head tucked under his arm. Proof that he is, in fact, a demon. <laughs> but when he comes to Theodora, Theodora, he says, he recounts this incident. And are you going to put this in the book or not? I don't know. But, well, I did put it in the book because it's just too colourful not to. He says, Theodora was famous as a performer 
uh, as a lewd performer. And her most famous act was to do a kind of a, uh, a lewd satire of Leader and the Swan. She would walk out in front of her audience like this, completely naked, wearing nothing but a thin gold chain around her waist. She would walk on stage, she would lie on a platform, then slaves would come and sprinkle breadcrumbs around her, let's say, the bathing suit area, shall we, <laughs> on her. And then a team of trained geese would come out, <laughs> hop up, and peck out all the breadcrumbs. Now, when you read something like that written in the sixth century, you're going to put that in your bloody book, aren't you? <laughs> and I did. I mean, and, and, you, and you have to say this about Procopius, though. He does give her one of the greatest speeches in the history of the empire. Early on in Justinian's reign, he lost the favour of the crowds, and there was a chant in the stadium against him. That there's a riot, effectively, uh, that had gotten out of hand, and he thought, well, I think we're going to have to leave. And one by one, he called his advisers into the palace, which was right next to the Hippodrome, so they could hear this jeering and chanting. And all of them said, well, I think we've got to leave. We have to get out. And then Th Theodora says, and Procopius recalls this, she says, uh, look, far be it for me to speak at a man's council like this, but let me say these few words. She said, my lord, addressing the emperor, we are wealthy, we have money, we have boats, and there is the sea. We could leave now, and we could live very comfortably for the rest of our lives. But I am one who is accustomed to ruling as an empress. And I, for one, think that purple is the perfect color for a winding sheet. So she's saying she wants to be, she'd rather die and be wrapped in, a, in the imperial purple sheet rather than run. And Justinian and his ministers hear this, and they go, oh, shit. <laughs> we better stay and fight. And so the next afternoon, his general, Belisarius, had just returned from Asia Minor. He, Belisarius had a team of troops. Another general, Mundus, had another team of troops. They stood at either end of the Hippodrome, and there's nearly 80,000 people in this stadium. And at the signal, they come in from either end. His soldiers produced their swords, and begin to hack and slash at the crowd, and hack and slash, and there's this, of course, complete panic, as at one end they, they run screaming from one group of troops and just run into the other. And this slaughter goes on all afternoon, all afternoon. And in the space of this afternoon, blood is running out into the main square, the Augustaeum, and it's estimated that up to a tenth of the city's population were killed in that stadium in that one afternoon. But from this, the following day, Justinian walks out and sees the burnt-out wreck of his square. He sees the burnt-out wreck of his church, the Hagia Sophia, and he says, well, I'll build another one because I want to be remembered as a builder and not a tyrant. So he calls his two favourite architects to him and says, build another church on this site. Make it, this, just, there are only two stipulations. One is, make it the greatest building in the world and do it quickly. Now, you think of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, maybe some of you people have seen that, you know, the grand... that took a century to build. The Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, which is a bigger and more beautiful building and a grander building with the biggest dome in the world for its time, and it remains so for a thousand years, was built in five and a half years. Five and a half years. And uh, people who have been to Istanbul have walked in that. I, I had such high expectations about being in that place. And being in there for me and for my son, it was like an electric experience. This complete assurance I had, and he had, that we were in the most beautiful building in the world, 
even today. It's not a church anymore, it's not a mosque anymore, it's a museum. So that's how, I suppose, Theodora puts steel in Justinian's spine to create the Hagia Sophia, but it's a, the most beautiful building in the world is built on this mountain of corpses. And that's the truth. Well, the other things, what, um, the other things that she did, because I mentioned she was a feminist, and then we just had ducks eating breadcrumbs from her. So, uh, oh, legal reform. Yes, yeah, I, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's important. Uh, early on, and this is actually one of the reasons why there was some writing. Uh, Justinian just reformed the whole of Roman law, and much of Europe still draws on Justinian's law reform, and she contributed to that. And she introduced all these rights for women into that society. She introduced one rule, which was that a man could not take on a debt without receiving the consent of his wife twice. <laughs> How do you like that, ladies? <laughs> so they're, well, steady on. <laughs> uh, also, he, she stipulated that women who were uh, arrested and imprisoned would have to be detained by female guards and not male guards, and she made rape an offence punishable, uh, punishable by death. So, so this is... This is Theodora does properly deserve to be remembered as... Uh, fe feminism is an odd thing to say because it's projecting the politics of the 20th and 21st centuries back, 15th centuries, but you can certainly say she was a remarkable woman, woman who was concerned very deeply about the rights of women that were otherwise ignored. Yes, against hull and high water getting these things achieved. Extraordinary. Absolutely. Now, listening to you retell the stories, I want to move on um, to Sagaland, but did you tell... Joe these stories? Yes. You talked him through them? Yes, I and, did. And how would you do that? Would you be back in the hotel at night and you'd talk to him or you're walking along? What, paint a picture for in us. The, in the place of these, of, uh, where these stories unfolded, outside the Hagia Sophia in this case, I told him the story of the fall of the city while we were walking along the famous Theodosian walls of Constantinople, which is still there. It's still there today. And you, we spent a day walking the entire length of these walls from the Sea of Marmara to the, the Golden Horn. You imagine, um, it's kind of, uh, Constantinople, or you know, the old part of Istanbul, is, it's, it's like this, it's a peninsula that sort of sticks into the water with water on three sides. And so it was defended by these ancient walls that went along that part of it there, which made the city virtually impregnable for, for century after century after century. These were impregnable walls, and these were the walls that had to be shattered by cannon fire from the Ottoman Turks in 1453. So it's a thrilling thing to be able to walk along these walls that are forgotten today. I didn't see really many people along these walls at all. Uh, and to tell my son the story of this. Early on on this trip, if you walk along the Theodosian walls in Constantinople, you, you come into this enclosure. It was rebuilt by the Turks as the fortress of Udikula. And we walked into this enclosure, and I really wasn't ready for this. I saw at the back of it an arch with two other arches, all bricked up with a kind of wooden door. Huge arch, but all bricked up. And I looked at it for a bit, and I went, oh man, that's the golden gate of the Caesars. This was the legendary ceremonial entry into Constantinople, reserved for emperors returning in victory. This was once a splendid gate covered in marble with gilt lettering, with two golden elephants on top, and this is where the emperor um, Heraclius came through in the seventh century after having beaten the Persians with a team of elephants, war elephants, coming through this, this gate. Now it's bricked up, bricked up by the, by the Romans themselves at the end of their, their tenure there because they couldn't defend it anymore. Bricked up and forgotten. It's like that passage from 
Ozymandias, the poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley, uh, about this kind of forgotten thing lying there that no one remembers that was once the greatest gate in the world. And that's this bricked up thing that no one ever visits now. That's really poignant. That's, that's, that's a beautiful lesson in history right there. Mm. And, and also the cyclical nature of humans on Earth, isn't it? That you're yes. famous, powerful, and then you die, and then somebody else comes along. And someone else comes along and you're not remembered. Yeah, except in this. Now, one of the things also, that just to segue very neatly into Sagaland, which is, has anybody read Sagaland yet? Yeah, beautiful book, which is, would you mind, I want to allow time for questions. Mm. And I'm not quite sure how we're going to choreograph that because I want everybody to know why you wrote Saga Land mm -hmm. and who you wrote it with. And then I want to ask you a question about the sagas in general. Sure. Can you set it up for us? Of course, yeah. Saga Land came from a friendship uh, I, I made from a guest who came on the show, a man named Kari Gislason. Kari was born in Iceland but has lived most of his life in Australia. Uh, and he came on my show to talk about his amazing family story. And Kauri, like I say, was born there, and when he was born in the early 70s, his father came to his mother and said, uh, asked that, if his name, that his name could not be put on the birth certificate, because his father already had a wife and five kids. And so no one knew the identity of Kauri's father, except for Kauri and his mother, for the longest time, even as they lived in Iceland. Uh, Kauri then grew up in Australia, Iceland until he was about eight, then came to Australia, grew up here, and he got to about the age of about 27, and he realized the secret wasn't his to keep anymore. He didn't have to, it was his mother's promise. And a promise that's made that negates your own existence, mm. that's not fair. So he wrote to his father, and then he wrote to his brothers and sisters to say, you have a brother. And they were really lovely about it, and they welcomed him into the family. He, he talks about going around to his sister Frida's house, and Frida, greeting him at the door, looking at him, he's six foot four, Car, he's a huge bugger, and <laughs> putting her hands on his face and saying, oh, Dad, like that, you know, because the resemblance was really strong between Kari and his father. So Kari had written this beautiful book, and we got on really well afterwards and started seeing each other, hanging around with each other, and this is a really unusual thing for men, like, uh, you know, women, you, you, women, you make close friends throughout the course of your life, but guys, we just don't do that, do we? We just don't. It's like that Jerry Seinfeld routine he used to do about, you know, you know when, you're, when you're a little boy, you go, hey, you got a yellow shirt, I got a yellow shirt, let's be friends. <laughs> uh, but once you get past 30, you can be at a party talking to a guy and you're getting on well, you go, look, look, you're a really nice person, we have all these things in common, but I'm sorry, we're just not hiring right now. And <laughs> that's what guys are like. But Carrie and I became friends anyway, good friends. We discovered we had all these things in common, we liked the same movies and books, we lived in the same suburb of Brisbane at that point, um, both had young families, and Kari introduced me to the sagas of Iceland. Now, when he started talking about them first, because uh, he has a doctorate in medieval Icelandic studies, like so many people here tonight have, I know. <laughs> um, and uh, when, when he started talking about them, I said, oh, the sagas, yeah, is that like Beowulf? You know, like uh, warriors with swords fighting Grendels and dragons. And he said, no, 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 no. No, the, the sagas are the stories, these classics of world literature, they're the stories of the first Viking families that came to settle in Iceland from Norway. They're, they're these very powerful human family stories. This isn't Tolkien, it's not fantasy. And they take us right into the minds of, of the Vikings and what their lives were like, living in this faraway island tucked under the Arctic Circle. So I started reading them and, and they're enormously moving stories. They're so powerful and so very modern. 
But they have, the Vikings have this, all these things in common with us in our modern lives. They're obsessed by the same things we are with family and love and failure and success and career and money and travel and all those things. But they've got this one key difference and that's the Viking concept of honour. Now Viking honour is not like Christian goodwill or Christian love, it doesn't flourish. It's, it's more like a currency and there's only so much of it to go round. And so that means you don't earn honour in Viking society. You have to take it from someone else. And that creates a really interesting society, as you might imagine. Sometime around the year 1000, 1000 AD, while on Europe, on the continent, they're getting ready for the end of the world because they think it's 1000 AD, Christ will come again in glory and terror and horror, whatever. In, in Iceland, though, there's this great flourishing of culture where it arguably becomes the, one of the most exciting cultures of Europe. Icelanders are going, they're leaving Iceland, their young men are going all the way to Constantinople. All the way, this is where my two books touch one another. Vikings are serving in the emperor's personal bodyguard, the Varangian guard, the guard of Vikings that serve in Constantinople. If people have been to the, to the Hagia Sophia in, in Istanbul, have you seen the Viking graffiti that's in it? You go up into the gallery upstairs and the marble balustrade has Viking runes carved in it, <laughs> written by a bored Viking from God knows where, Sweden or Iceland or whatever, and it says in runes, Halfdan wrote this. <laughs> Halfdan was this hapless Viking bored shitless by this kind of three-hour court ritual that was being placed downstairs. Oh, God, when is it done? It's like a kid looking for a smartphone, really. You know? <laughs> and, and, and so, so they, there are Vikings, Icelanders going all the way to Constantinople and to the Holy Land from there. And there are other Vikings who are going west, like Eric the Red, who goes and makes two settlements in Greenland. And then his, then his son and others who go even further to the Americas. This still isn't well known. It's still assumed that Christopher Columbus is the first European to travel to the Americas. It's not true. Icelanders went to the Americas 500 years before Christopher Columbus set out from Spain. This is recorded in two sagas, the saga of the Greenlanders and the saga of Eric the Red, of how they sailed. We know that Viking settlements have been found in Newfoundland in Canada. We know they went down maybe past the coast of Massachusetts, near Martha's Vineyard, even maybe they went as far down as Manhattan. What kind of technology did they have yeah. that allowed them to traverse the oceans like that? So they're going, Vikings, Icelanders are going to east, they're going west to America, and at home they're creating these stories that are sagas, these perfect stories. So Carly and I had this idea that we would go to Iceland together and we would record him telling his favourite saga stories in the places where they unfolded a thousand years ago, because these are stories of real people whose existences we know, uh, we, we know it to be a fact because they're recorded in Iceland's genealogies at the time. And these stories are so beautiful. The, there's one more thing to be said about honour as well, a Viking honour, and this is crucial to understanding the sagas, is that a woman's honour is every bit as important as a man's honour in these stories. And when a woman is misused, she will defend her honour even if it means destroying the ones she loves. This is how it works. My favourite of the sagas comes from Lakshdala's saga. It's the saga of Gudrun. Gudrun is my favourite saga character. She's in a love triangle with two foster brothers, Botli and Kjartan. And both of them lie to her or misuse her or are just too thoughtless in the end. And she wreaks a terrible revenge on them that results in both their deaths. And at the end of her life, she becomes Iceland's first nun, Christian nun. And at the end of her life, her son comes to her and says, Mother, which one of those did you love the most? 
And she says this amazing thing. She says, I was worst to the one I loved the most. Isn't that an amazing thing to say? I was worst to the one I loved the most. And today, no Icelander can agree on which of the brothers she's talking about. <laughs> that's the beauty of it. How they don't, fabulous. They don't tell you what they're thinking. There's no soliloquies. You have to judge them by what they say and what they do. Now, we haven't got much time for questions, but if you'd like to ask a question, there are <laughs> microphones here and not there. Is that correct? <laughs> okay, well, that halves the questions. They're right there and then. Um, if you have a question, please come up. Because, and while you're doing that, if you don't mind, um, we will keep talking. Anybody got a question? Please don't be shy because, no, of course... No, ask me anything at all. Go for your life. Go right ahead. And if you don't have a question, don't worry, because clearly we can talk the leg off an iron pot. But please, if there's anything, just pop up to the microphone right there. Don't worry about it at all if we're all staring at you. All right. Yeah. Now, I think the definition of honour is extraordinary because to me it sounds in our society, I think it's really seen, but it sounds like a glamorous and wondrous thing. But it, isn't it actually all about envy and greed yes. and pride? Yes, it's unsustainable. The thing to know about the sagas is... They're not written by... Uh, they're, they're stories about the, the pagan first Icelanders, the worshippers of Thor and Odin. This is where we get the stories of the Norse gods from. Uh, but they're written down on paper in Icelandic by Christians, probably Christian monks, in the 13th century. And you have to see it through that prism because the Christians are writing about their pagan ancestors that go back only a couple of hundred years. But they're writing about them in this way that sort of implies this wasn't sustainable. This revenge tit-for-tat culture is murderous, but bloody hell, it's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> and what amazing stories, and what extraordinary people that they are, where honour is so powerful, they will sustain these awful, crippling losses. And it's also a society where, where there's no towns, not even villages, there's just farms. And people come together in one place the Valley of Thingvatlir, only one time a year for their annual parliaments. But other than that, they're living on farms. But within these farms, they're living too close together. So often the sagas are stories. You imagine, imagine living with your extended family. Just imagine that for the moment. Everyone living in a house that's probably just about twice the size of the apron on the stage here. How do you reckon you'd go getting on with one another? <laughs> It's like, it's like the family Christmas where you're stuck with one another, your most difficult uncle, and, 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 and at winter it's dark outside, right around, the, like you get about three or four hours of light, even barely, during the day. What does that do? What kind of, what kind of constraints do you have mm -hmm. to operate upon yourself in order to actually get along with one another? And, and, and no wonder their interactions are so explosive. You also neglected to say the beautiful Kari, is that how yes. it's pronounced? is told by his dad that he is a direct descendant of the great saga yes. teller in Iceland. That's right, And yes. so that's part of the journey as well, to discover if this is in fact true. That's, that's the secondary part of our journey. Uh, when Kauri finally was introduced, was welcomed into his Icelandic family, his father said to him, what are you doing with your life? And he said, well, I want to be a writer. And he said, well, that makes sense because, you know, Kauri, you're descended from Snotty Sturluson. Now, Snotty Sturluson is not a name that's going to ring a huge amount of bells here. And it's not, just to be clear, it's not Snotty Snooty. No, it's, it's Snotty. Snotty. S-N-O-R-R-I, but you okay. pronounce it Snotty, like that, Snotty Sturluson. And Snotty is Iceland's national hero. He's the greatest of the saga authors. He, there is a street 
a beer and a statue named after him. Snorri Pale Ale is a fine drop, I can tell, <laughs> tell you. We drank many of those while we were in Iceland together. Uh, Snorri Sturluson is the author of three of the greatest sagas. He wrote Eötvös Saga, one of the most moving family sagas. He wrote this great history, Heimskringla, the history of the Norwegian kings. But most significantly, he wrote the Prose Edda. The Prose Edda is where we get all of Norse mythology from. Like you've seen Thor Ragnarok. Ragnarok, we know about Ragnarok because of what Snorri wrote about it. We know about Thor and Odin and Loki and Freya and Sif and all the Norse pantheon of gods because Snorri wrote this, their story and how they all meet their death at Ragnarok in this book, the Prose Edda. And this, this when, when Kari told me this, I was kind of flabbergasted because it's like being told your dear friend is descended from Shakespeare or Tolstoy. That's the kind of presence Snorri Sturluson has. Like I say, he's not well known, but Tolkien, when Tolkien was teaching at Oxford University, he advised his students not to bother with Shakespeare, but to read Snorri Sturluson instead. The names that appear in, his, in Snorri's books appear in Lord of the Rings. Uh, he influenced poets like Borges and W.H. Auden enormously. He's been a huge influence, but his works and his name isn't very well known outside of Iceland. But you think what we do without Norse mythology. Neil Gaiman, I had him on my show a year and a half ago after he brought out his Norse mythology book, and we couldn't bang on about Snorri Sturluson all the time, but we talked about him for a good hour off, off, <laughs> off mic because he's such an interesting guy. So I went there, we went to see if that was true because Kari's name's not on, his father's name wasn't on his birth certificate, so he wasn't able to trace the chain of ancestry. So our mission there was to see if we could get them to put Kari's name next to his father's so if we could follow that chain of ancestry all the way back to the 13th century, to Snotty Sturluson. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to do while I was there was to research his life, the truth about it, because he is the national hero of Iceland, and he's considered Iceland's great statesman. That's not really true. Iceland had this proud, independent commonwealth. Snorri was the smartest man in the island. He was a brilliant politician, but too clever by half. He was too greedy for power. And in the end, he more than anyone did, any, did brought the Icelandic independent commonwealth down. So there is that other legacy of Snorri Sturluson's to be found out as well. And for his sins, he was murdered in his cellar in the year 1241, saying, don't strike, don't, 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 don't hit me with your sword. So there's, there's, this is all recorded in the sagas of Iceland. This is all kind of like a rich, rich meal, if you like, that I just couldn't wait to get stuck into while we were there. Would you read, before we go, would you read a yeah, little yeah, to yeah, us? Sure. You've got the most beautiful yeah. voice, and uh, there's nothing more delightful than hearing an author read their own work, don't you think? So can you set this yeah. up for us? This is from uh, Ghost Empire. So this is me and my son. Like, in between all this kind of rolling history and, you know, civilization, clash of civilizations and the Black Death and all that, it's interspersed with Joe and I having father-son moments in Istanbul. And uh, this is about the day when we tried a thing called uh, this beautiful uh, dish that they have there called kaimak. Outside the mosque, this is outside the Blue Mosque at this point, Joe is intrigued by a cart selling something called salep. I order two cups and we're presented with a creamy hot drink. I hand a paper cup to Joe who takes a long, slow sip. He closes his eyes and smiles like he's just found something he was looking for. Right. He says emphatically, we're having salep every day while we're here. Now, salep is a gooey mixture of milk, rice, flour, sugar, and rose water. But the crucial ingredient is derived from the tubers of wild orchids, 
which are washed, boiled, dried, and ground. The milky concoction is poured into a cup and garnished with cinnamon or crushed pistachios. Turkish people claim that salep is a medicinal drink, effective against all kinds of complaints, including bronchitis and heart disease. But Joe and I are happy to drink it for the sweet contentment it brings on a cold morning. That night, we tell Yassine, the desk clerk at the hotel, how much we love salep. Salep's no big deal, he says. The really great thing to have in Istanbul is kaimak. Yassine scrawls a name on a post-it note that says, Pando Kaimak. The best kaimak is here, he says quietly. The next day, Joe and I walk down to Eminonu to catch the ferry to the crowded inner city suburb of Besiktas on the European shore of the Bosphorus. Besiktas is a gentrified shopping precinct with kebab shops, mobile phone outlets and burger joints. Joe and I find our way to the cobalt blue shopfront, Pando's Cafe. This cafe is an institution in Istanbul, like Pellegrini's in Melbourne or Fazelka in New York City. Run down but spick and span, informal but charismatic. The clientele is a mixture of old-timers and young Turkish hipsters. Joe and I take a seat at a marble-topped table as an ancient man shuffles past, tentatively carrying a plate of eggs. This is the proprietor, Pando, a man in his 90s with close-cropped hair and white whiskers. Pando and his wife, Dona, are some of the few remaining Greek Christians in Istanbul. Clustered on the walls are framed photos of Pando's proud ancestors, mustachioed men with burgundy feathers perched on their heads. The cafe serves a delicious breakfast of fried eggs and sausages washed down with tea or Turkish coffee. But people mostly come here for the kaimak, which I discover is a kind of clotted cream that's formed from buffalo milk. It's a traditional Turkish food, originating from Central Asia. Dona comes to our table. She wears an apron over her black cardigan and her gray hair is pulled back into a bun. She bows her head with a degree of old world formality and smiles at us, ready to take our order. Now, I have no Turkish, so I grin apologetically, pointed items on the menu and say querulously, Kaimak, Turkish coffee. Dona smiles. Avec du sucre? She inquires. A little taken aback, I reply, uh, yes, I mean, oui. <laughs> She's speaking beautiful French to me, this lovely Greek grandmother in Istanbul. <laughs> Vous êtes américain? She inquires politely. No, madame, I stutter, summoning my schoolboy French. Nous venons de l'Australie. <laughs> <laughs> ah, mon mari a un cousin à Melbourne. Oh, je suis né à Melbourne. She jots down our order. Alors, deux plates de kaimak et café turc avec du sucre. Merci, madame. She smiles and withdraws. Joe is a gog. <laughs> We've been here all this time, he says. And you speak fluent Turkish? <laughs> I arch an eyebrow enigmatically. It's so hard to impress a teenage son. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thank you.
you to all of you for being such a wonderful audience, and thank you, Richard. Thank you to the Newcastle Writers Festival for thank having us much here. For having and us. Richard, thank what a joy! Incredible, ladies and gentlemen. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I can say I'll be signing books. Yeah. yeah. Now, Richard will be outside at the table signing books, and there are some of my mysterious books there too, which are going to increase in value enormously. Exactly. All right? We'll be out there at the table. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2018 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Join us in 2019 from April 5 to 7 and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.